I must just say it's so wonderful to have my very dear and now old friend, Suhail Bushui, who I, I'm not good about numbers of years, but it's a great many years that we've been friends and met in many continents, uh, in India, in, and on one memorable occasion when uh, Professor Bushui organized a conference on Kali Gibran about which he has been so very beautifully and understandingly. And I arrived to find that the conference had been postponed uh, that day. The Druzes were firing shells down into the airport. I had great difficulty in getting there at all. When I did find the way across a tragically wrecked city of Beirut, the former camp of the Palestinians, Israeli outposts on the street corner, young men with tin helmets and rifles and others, finally got there. And there was this beautiful exhibition all arranged by Professor Bushmere, which of course had to be cancelled. And then the problem was how to get rid of me again the next day. <laughs> However, it was done, and I was never so glad to get into the play to leave it. But I'm so happy that I saw what it is like to be in a country with um, a war of bitter hatred um, at close quarters, because during the blitz it was like the weather, it just would rain some nights and dry other nights. But in Lebanon there was this great sense of bitter sectarian <coughs> division and hatred and every kind of warfare. And I can so well understand why Professor Bushmuri, under those circumstances, became a, a Baha'i because the Baha'i community is dedicated to the, the unity of religions and uh, charity between all sects. And tonight we're going to hear a, a Bushmuri perspective on, on the the use of the environment. But at this point, I'm going to hand over to you, David, and, and, and David is now in charge of the chair. Second welcome. I just wanted to place this evening to context of the series. This is the last of a series of four evenings in uh, headed a question of values. We felt uh, earlier on this year that with the amount of attention, the increasing attention of the environment in matters like sustainability get, that it was important to look beneath the technical perspective at the values which underlie our concern with the environment and a, perhaps a quest for a greater connectedness in life. Um, and in at least two of those, and this is the Second. We have reached out into another community, and the first, Satish Kumar, who was a, uh, a Jain, uh, spoke to us on the reverence for life, and we had uh, representatives of the Jain community with us, which was a very nice thing to have. Uh, we then had uh, Arnie Nass, the Norwegian philosopher on deep ecology, and then a paper which looked at environment from a Buddhist perspective, 
And this evening, I know we have in the audience a number of people from the Baha'i community, and we welcome you very much and glad to have you with us. And we hope that this will be the beginning of a relationship with you. Um, it is certainly something that next year we want to develop our reaching out into these important uh, communities. And so, Professor Matt, I'd ask you to speak to us, and then will you take some questions towards the end? Thank you. Kathleen. Professor, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really honored and delighted to participate in anything organized by Kathleen Rain. Kathleen is uh, our mentor. She is the Dion, the dean of all the activities that are related to the spirit. And the Terminus Academy has been a very sacred place for all of us, really, those of us who participate in its activities. And it's with great honor and with great temerity and humility that I take the stand this evening to talk about uh, environmental ethics, a Baha'i perspective. When one speaks about something related to one's faith, one should be very careful not to uh, seem to be trying to sell something. I'm not going to do that tonight at all. I'm going to just share with you some of the Baha'i writings which deal with the environment, specifically with the whole concept of unity. I have a paper. It is rough. It is crude. I have been traveling in the Middle East. I have uh, been traveling for the last month. I visited Lebanon, Kuwait, the Emirates, and Oman. And I tell you, what I saw happen to the environment in the first three countries is almost suicidal. The only country where I found people were far aware of how sacred the environment is and respected their own culture were the Omanis. It's very strange, but this is how it is. And they have preserved for us, really, a model of environmental common sense. It is very easy to succumb to material aspirations, a material ambition, and this is what's happening everywhere. However, I would like first to start with a passage by Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, from a tablet entitled Lawh al-Hikmah in its original tongue, which is the Tablet of Wisdom. Say, nature in its essence is the embodiment of my name, the maker, the creator. Its manifestations are diversified by varying causes. And in this diversity, there are signs for men of discernment. Nature is God's will and is its expression in and through the contingent world. It is a dispensation of providence ordained by the ordainer, the all-wise. Were anyone to affirm that it is the will of God as manifested in the world of being, 
No one should question this assertion. It is endowed with a power whose reality men of learning fail to grasp. Indeed, a man of insight can perceive not therein save the effulgent splendor of our name, the Creator. Say, this is an existence which knoweth no decay, and nature itself is lost in bewilderment before its revelations. Its compelling evidences and its effulgent glory, which have encompassed the universe. It ill beseemeth thee to turn thy gaze unto former or more recent times. Make thou mention of this day and magnify that which hath appeared therein. It will in truth suffice all mankind. Indeed, Expositions and discourses in explanation of such things cause the spirit to be chilled. It behoveth thee to speak forth in such wise as to set the hearts of true believers ablaze and cause their bodies to soar. This passage and other passages such as this one, every created thing in the whole universe is but a door leading into his knowledge, a sign of his sovereignty, a revelation of his names, a symbol of his majesty, a token of his power, a means of admittance into the straight path. Throughout the Baha'i writings, this emphasis on the unity of things and on love for there is no unity without love the lovers of mankind these are the superior men of whatever nation creed or color they may be from its earliest origins the concept of unity has been central to the Baha'i faith. Unity of the Creator, unity of religion, and unity of humankind. This is summed up in the words of Abdul Baha, the successor of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i religion, describing a global ethic which was to underpin the responsibilities duties and functions of the creed and its followers. Abdu'l-Bahá writes, O ye beloved of the Lord, in this sacred dispensation, conflict and contention are in no wise permitted. Every aggressor deprives himself of God's grace. It is incumbent upon everyone to show the utmost love, rectitude of conduct, straightforwardness and sincere kindliness unto all the peoples and kindreds of the world be they friends or strangers. So intense must be the spirit of love and loving-kindness that the stranger may find himself a friend, the enemy a true brother, no difference whatever existing between them. For universality is of God and all limitations earthly. Thus man must strive that his reality may manifest virtues and perfections the light whereof may shine upon everyone. 
the light of the sun shineth upon all the world and the merciful showers of divine providence fall upon all the people. The vivifying breeze reviveth every living creature and all beings endued with life obtain their share and portion at his heavenly board. In like manner, the affections and loving kindnesses of the servants of the one true God must be bountifully and universally extended to all mankind. Regarding this, restrictions and limitations are in no wise permitted. In this passage, we find several ideas expressed which are fundamental to the Baha'i approach to environmental issues as well as to ethics in general. The nature imagery with its references to sun, showers and breezes, and to create a God concerned to provide justly and equitably for every part of his creation, is instrumental in impressing this on the reader, the call for harmony between peoples and individuals is echoed by an implicit statement of the need for a similar accord between humanity and the rest of the created world, be it animal, vegetable, or the earth itself. This need becomes ever more urgent as pressures increase on an environment in which not only are the forces of nature under attack from pesticides, pollution, and commercial exploitation, but the products of food for the developed world find themselves at the mercy of multinational concerns which subject them to harsh working conditions, severe health <coughs> risks, and minimum wages. At present, for example, the plight of the people of Honduras is attracting widespread attention following the devastation of their country by hurricanes, flooding, and epidemics. Its economy depends largely on bananas, which supply Honduras with 70% of its foreign exchange. Bananas are a productive crop. A sapling, bears fruit, a sapling bears fruit nine months after planting. And it is also a valuable source of nutrients, especially potassium. Yet this crop is grown mainly for export denying the local producers and their families the sustenance which they need. If a banana sells for 10p in a British shop, 3p of that would go to the retailer and the same amount to the packagers. Wholesaler, importer and shipping company would each receive 1p, leaving 1p to be shared between the grower and picker. 5% for each out of the total sum. I have described this case in detail because it relates directly to a current and tragic situation which is vividly present before our eyes whenever we open a newspaper or watch television broadcasts at present. It also exemplifies the Baha'i attitude to the fruits of the earth and the fair distribution. Responsible husbandry of the earth 
and its resources is recognized as an essential precept in many of the world's great religions. In classical mythology, the earth itself was worshipped as a deity, and it was understood that there could be no question of drawing ceaselessly and greedily from its store without putting something back in return. We find this motif in the Greek worship of Demeter and Persephone, the harvest goddess and her daughter, who represented spring and renewed fertility. The ritual practiced at Athens, where the women of the city cast sacrificial offerings of pigs into a deep pit in the temple precincts, which was opened only once a year, may seem barbarous and distasteful to us nowadays, but nevertheless illustrates this principle of restoration and repayment at work. The underlying belief was that the earth, if not treated with due reverence and gratitude, might turn harshly on those who had failed to give her proper respect. In the Old Testament, as in Greek mythology, we read of a devastating flood being unleashed on the earth in retribution for the insensate greed, wickedness and impiety of its inhabitants with only a handful of survivors, Noah and his family, being spurred to repopulate it. In both stories, it is made clear that these peoples were an exception to the general selfishness and lack of care for the world that prevailed among their contemporaries and that they were saved for this very reason to provide hope of a more enlightened future. This natural phenomenon is directly related in both accounts to divine justice and with the Gaia movement of recent years the belief has once again become widely current that the earth if mistreated, is capable of terrible retaliation. I think, uh, Catherine, in Shakespeare, Shakespeare understood the relationship between man and his environment. The Tempest is a very good example of how nature reacts to the way man thinks and what he does. And I think in Julius Caesar, these words come to mind, when beggars die, there are no comets seen, the heavens themselves place forth the death of princes, which again is a, is a point to say how nature uh, corresponds to man's own reaction and thinking and work. In Bangladesh, for example, a country in which 30 million people were affected by floods this year, actions formerly taken to curb flooding have actually made things worse. Dams and road building have affected the delicate balance between land and sea. Another tragic reversal of well-meant planning occurred when new wells drilled to provide pure drinking water were found to be contaminated with arsenic present in the subsoil, slowly poisoning 50 million people. Against this background of growing recognition of the dangers inherent in upsetting the equilibrium between man and nature, let us consider some of the explicit statements to be found in the sacred writings of the world religions 
on the relationship between God, man, and creation. And the reason that I go back to the world religions is a statement which is, I think, central to Baha'i thought, and, and that is that all religions somehow hold the same truth. The faith standing identified with the name of Baha'u'llah, writes Shoghi Effendi, disclaims any intention to belittle any of the prophets gone before him, to whittle down any of their teachings, to obscure, however slightly, the radiance of their revelations, to oust them from the hearts of their followers, to abrogate the fundamentals of their doctrines, to discard any of their revealed books, or to suppress the legitimate aspirations of their adherents, repudiating the claim of any religion to be the final revelation of God to man, disclaiming finality for his own revelation, Baha'u'llah inculcates the basic principle of the relativity of religious truth, the continuity of divine revelation, the progressiveness of religious experience. His aim is to widen the basis of all revealed religions and to unravel the mysteries of their scriptures. He insists on the unqualified recognition of the unity of their purpose, restates the eternal verities they enshrine, coordinates their functions, distinguishes the essential and the authentic from the non-essential and spurious in the teachings, separates the God-given truths from the priest-prompted superstitions, and on this as a basis proclaims the possibility and even prophesies the inevitability of their unification and the consummation of their highest hopes. It is with this feeling of tremendous respect that uh, it is my duty also to mention these truths in other religions. In the book of Genesis, for example, we read that God gave man dominion over the created world, a term which has been hotly disputed by biblical scholars. It is generally agreed now that what is implied is a responsible stewardship rather than unthinking exploitation, although the passage has been subject to widespread misinterpretation to justify commercial practices now discredited. As we now regard slavery, a staple element in various European and American economics until well into the last century, as we regard slavery with abhorrence, so for farming, open cast mining, and the rearing of calves in veal crates arouse increasing condemnation with a growing awareness of the unjustifiable cost which they represent in terms of suffering to creatures, to the sentient creatures, and damage to the environment. So the, the Judeo-Christian perspective then unites responsibility to God and to his creation from the outset. Respect for one leads naturally 
to a reverence for the other. This attitude can also be found in the Quran, in the seventh chapter, which states, do, not, do no mischief to the earth after it has been set in order, but call on him with fear and longing in your hearts, for the mercy of God is always near to those who do good. The same injunction is laid upon humanity in the Zoroastrian Vindidad, where we read, O Ahura Mazda, the great light has instructed all righteous men and all righteous women not to spoil the land, the flowing water, not to spoil the increase of corn and other things of value created by him. Among the Māori folk of New Zealand, a similar view is enshrined in three ancient proverbs. The treasure of the land will persist, human possessions will not. The treasured possessions of men are intangible, the treasures of the land are tangible. Without language, self-esteem and land, people will cease to exist. Also from the Native American wisdom, it was uh, in 1855, after the American government had violated a treaty promising his people land, Chief Seattle, who, who took this name because uh, he believed that uh, President Washington, uh, who lived in Washington, and Chief Seattle lived in Seattle, called himself Washington. So he was living in Seattle, so he called himself Chief Seattle, um, wrote to, to, to the American government and accused the government of violating a treaty promising his people land. These are the words of Chief Seattle. Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every hillside, every valley, Every clearing and wood is holy in the memory and experience of my people. Even those unspeaking stones along the shore are loud with events and memories in the life of my people. The ground beneath your feet responds more lovingly to our steps than yours, because it is the ashes of our grandfathers, our bare feet, know the kindred touch. The earth is rich with the lives of our kin. In the writings of Abdul Baha, we read a summation of the Baha'i precepts on all these matters. He says, it is brief, briefly, it is not only their fellow human beings that the beloved of God must treat with mercy and compassion Rather must they show forth the utmost loving kindness to every living creature. The feelings are one and the same, whether we inflict pain on man or on beast. Here we find that view of unity, which we have already noted as central to Baha'i teachings. To wound a fellow creature, whether human or non-human, strikes at the whole order of creation and at the Creator Himself. Thus far, 
we have concentrated mainly on the direct action of man on his fellow creatures through behavior likely to harm them or their surroundings. Yet there is one sphere of activity so necessary to life, whether human or animal, that may not be immediately perceived in this light, but whose impact on the environment is immense. I refer appropriately in this setting tonight to building. We find this activity carried out by all kinds of creatures, from termites with their anthills and bees with their highly organized colonies of hexagonal cells, through weaver birds with their complex nests and the intricate structures fabricated by satin bower birds and the networks of warrens and burrows dug by rabbits and mole rats to man himself with his castles and cathedrals, his temples and towers. Yet as human building becomes increasingly sophisticated, <clears throat> we find our striking change coming about. We find one striking change coming about. Whereas in nature, and so-called primitive societies, whether animal or human, building materials are generally drawn from the immediate environment, mud, reeds, bricks, of alluvial clay, local stone, etc. Twentieth century man has at his disposal a wide range of materials, both organic and inorganic, gathered from all over the world, often at considerable cost in energy and labor. The impact on the environment is twofold. Firstly, there are the effects of harvesting or manufacturing these materials and transporting them, often over long distances. Secondly, there are the consequences of imposing alien materials and building methods on an environment which may be far from suitable for them, whether unknowingly or for reasons of prestige. One has only to remember Peter the Great's window of the West, St. Petersburg, that vast attempt to impose man's will on the marshy and inhospitable shores of the Gulf of Finland, where the terrible toll of human lives, claimed by drainage and construction, earned that glittering new capital the title of City of Ten Thousand Corpses. Modern building methods may be less hazardous and safety procedures and protective clothing more effective than in the 17th century. Yet, we disregard at our peril the costs, both spiritual and physical, of disregarding the needs and nature of the inhabitants and environment of any proposed settlement or structure. I was uh, for one month, as I said earlier, in the Gulf. Lebanon is going through now an ecological disaster. People are very happy to show you what we have reconstructed. You see, you see the roads, you see buildings, but at what cost? The trees have been cut. There are no sacred spaces. The stone has been hewn out of the mountain. The sand has been removed from its place elsewhere. And really, I felt so unhappy. It was almost 
like I, I said to a group of students I was talking to, do you want your country to be a network of roads, asphalt roads, and concrete buildings? No consideration whatsoever. And despite all the beautiful buildings in the center of Beirut, I think the price has been very high indeed. And only in years to come, I think Lebanon is going to suffer what these last nine years of reconstruction, so-called reconstruction, has meant. And I'm really very sad and very upset about this because I know that Mrs. Tanus here with me shares this. She comes from Lebanon as well. Now, in Kuwait, it's a similar story. But what was unbelievable, incredible, almost shocking, is to see what has happened to Dubai. This uh, American metropolis in the midst of the desert, absolutely in contrast to everything you can imagine. It is, not, it is in disharmony with the people, with their culture, with the desert, with the environment, with everything you can imagine. And you know, Dubai today is one of the most nervous cities in the world. It's almost schizophrenic both people and the city itself. I don't know whether you know anything about Arabs like me. I'm, I'm pronouncing it the American way. We are really very calm and, and uh, most of the time. Uh, very calm and, and, and the desert and, and slow and patient, you see, because you can't fight the elements of the, of the earth. Now, to be rushing around uh, in these loops roads going up and coming down. The traffic is unbelievable. And you, I see now the difference between the people of Dubai 12 years ago when I visited them and today. They're not the same people. And the only explanation is, well, the environment does affect character. It does. You don't need to have Los Angeles in the middle of the Arabian desert, really. By contrast, I was in Oman, and I, I was so elated, both my wife and myself understood why these people are so dignified, and so kind, and so calm, and so generous, and so compassionate, really, because they decided that they're not going to upset their environment by building buildings which are unnatural. So they have adjusted everything. It's brand new. If you go to Muscat, it's a brand new city. But it is also a very old city indeed. It has kept its spirit, its soul. And, and you see these things and you, you see the effect it has on people. And this is something that you can't sit down and write in a textbook. Because somebody tells you, you know, you know how it is in America. How do you measure it? Academics usually ask you for proof, measure it. Well, there are certain things you cannot measure. Anyhow, in this context of building, I would like to refer you to the writings of Leo Zredlow who calls us to consider 
a challenge for the 21st century in his article, The Missing Dimension in the Built Environment, where, from a Baha'i viewpoint, he compares definitions of architecture offered by various authors and architects, such as Frank Lloyd Wright and Leon Cryer, and demonstrates the growth of concern for a spiritual dimension which has been absent from urban planning for several decades. If, as Goethe puts it, architecture is frozen music, without that spiritual content, it becomes music in disharmony with its context and a source of further discord and malaise among those who have to live and work in such an environment. The much-discussed sick building syndrome is an example of this, where disregard for the spatial and spiritual needs of workers actually produces physical symptoms of ill health. Zradlow's thesis is based on two important principles unity in diversity and consultation. With the first, we once again find ourselves contemplating the Baha'i tenet of unity and, and indivisibility. Neglect one aspect of creation or creativity and the whole will suffer. The second is inextricably associated with it. Consultation implies a respect for the needs and values of those for whose use the building is intended or who will be affected by its construction. He suggests ways in which planners and architects can incorporate such a spiritual dimension into their designs, having first attempted to define the spiritual qualities desirable for this task. He quotes Abdu'l-Bahá's description of the character of the spiritually learned and the spiritual perfection which it implies as follows. The first attribute of perfection is learning and the cultural attainments of the mind. This suggests a holistic approach entailing not only technical mastery of a profession but a sensitivity to spiritual needs and an open and inquiring mind equipped to find creative solutions to the challenges involved in shaping the environment, rather than an unthinking absorption of received wisdom and unquestioning acceptance of established ways of thinking, no matter how deserving of respect. Abdu'l-Bahá continues, the second aspect of perfection is justice and impartiality. This means to have no regard for one's own personal benefits and selfish advantages. It means to see oneself as only one of the servants of God, and except for aspiring to spiritual distinction, never attempting to be singled out from the others. This, as uh, Zradlow points out, directly counters the spirit of many modern architects with their intensely competitive aspirations. And indeed, the principle of organizing competitions for the best design for a new public building 
in which a thirst for individual prestige and financial and professional considerations can all too easily outweigh the spiritual one. The third equipment of perfection is to arise with complete sincerity and purity of purpose to educate the masses. The utmost effort, we must exert the utmost effort to instruct them in the various branches of learning and useful sciences, to encourage the development of modern progress, to widen the scope of commerce, industry and the arts to further such measures as will increase the people's wealth and prosperity, but not at the expense of their spirituality. Here we see a recognition of the need for a degree of prosperity and stability as a basis for the healthy development of a community, but also an acknowledgement that such conditions are unlikely to arise without a true spiritual foundation. The people are not to be provided merely with material satisfactions, the bread and circuses cynically offered to placate the Roman populace huddled in the squalid insulae, the jerry-built tenement blocks whose precarious conditions Juvenal, the great Roman poet, so graphically describes, but are to be given free access to the knowledge and education that will help them to become active participants in the creation of their environment. Unlike many modern architects who impose their own social and cultural preconceptions on those for whom they design, the architects of the Baha'i community will learn from the people as well as offering their own expertise and technical skills. Earlier in the same work, Abdul Baha gives us a clear statement of social mission, stating plainly that material wealth must always come second to the happiness and welfare and well-being of the people. He writes, we should continually be establishing new bases for human happiness and creating and promoting new instrumentalities toward this end. How excellent, how honorable, is man if he arises to fulfill his responsibilities, how wretched and contemptible if he shuts his eyes to the welfare of society, wastes his precious life in pursuing his own selfish interests and personal advantage. It is important not to take these remarks out of context as mere idealistic dismissal of the need for consideration of economic and social requirements. He expresses a realistic awareness of these with certain important provisions. Wealth is most commendable provided the entire population is wealthy. If, however, if you have inordinate riches while the rest are impoverished and no fruit or benefit accrues from that wealth, then it is only a liability to its possessor. And if a judicious and resourceful individual, says Abdu'l-Baha, should initiate measures which would universally enrich the masses of the people, there could be no undertaking greater than this. Note the emphasis 
on that word judicious. There is no room here for the unscrupulous entrepreneur bent on exploiting the environment regardless of human or ecological cost. The built environment is a part of the great whole to which he refers in paragraph 4. We must now highly resolve to arise and lay hold of all those instrumentalities that promote the peace and well-being and happiness, the knowledge, culture and industry, the dignity, value and station of the entire human race. I don't know how many of you watched Newsnight uh, yesterday. They had George Soros on it. He has just written a book and he was uh, talking about uh, how wrong it is for this global market not to be under control. And then when he was asked, well, but you made, in 1992, thousands of people in Britain jobless, because this was a result of his intervention, as some of you remember, his answer was, well, this did not come into it. I was playing by the rules. It didn't matter. And he, then when he was uh, pressured, I think, he said, well, he t uh, J Jeremy Paxton, is it? Yes, he told him, well, are you uh, suggesting that we should now control? He said, absolutely. Absolutely. We have already commented on the deep reverence for life in all its forms which underlies the Baha'i faith. The judicious architect, therefore, will not plunge blindly ahead, damaging rivers, uprooting trees, or sacrificing the habitat of humans and other species without a second thought. Alongside this regard for the sanctity of life and creation, Baha'is believe specifically uh, in a recognition of the importance of a spiritual frame for every area of human activity, as the previous quotations show. This inner individual holiness is closely bound up with the concept of the physical sanctity of sacred spaces. Man himself indeed is such a space, as Christian terminology expresses it, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, uses a similar concept in describing the body as the temple of the soul. Man in this world is a sacred temple, and the concept of building is closely linked with this idea. One is struck by the precise and detailed account of its dimensions and appearance, down to the individual kinds of jewel laid as its foundations and adoring, adorning its gates. These have an allegorical significance, but also stand as symbols of the supreme richness and beauty of the city and the harmony of its parts. We find a similar concept in Al-Farabi's Al-Madina Al-Fadila, the ideal city. The actual site of this city is frequently significant. Baha'is believe that they are building on Mount Carmel a similar city. But the sacred spaces are intimately associated with a dimension of human sanctity as well as being intrinsically sacred. Now, on Mount Carmel, the is this is I'm sorry I, I, I don't have any slides but 
I will show you. This is the Baha'i World Center, and I will let this pass through. It is very carefully designed. It is very careful. The architecture is very carefully blending with a system with the mountain and the gardens. Uh, this uh, is published by, I think, the Haifa Municipality. And in the middle, there are very many scenes of how everything is planned uh, to create a tapestry of beauty and mountains. Terraced gardens have been planted with a variety of flora that are in bloom throughout the year. At the center of the terraces, there is a formal landscape which turns to transition areas with different kinds of ground covers and flowering trees. This, in turn, moves to a more rugged landscape to merge with the bordering forest areas. This is here after which uh, is, as a matter of fact, what the Baha'is are doing at the moment is to translate this vision of uh, the environment into actual buildings. And when you go into the buildings, the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, was fond of roses, flowers, trees. My father was brought up by Abdul Baha the son of uh, Baha'u'llah in Haifa. And uh, in his memoirs, he has recorded what Abdul Baha once told him. It is a crime to cut down a tree. This, uh, from the quotations previously cited, it will be apparent that one quality above all others informs the activities of the architect, whether human or divine. Its deepest and simplest sense, this is nothing more nor less than love. Christian audiences would be familiar with Christ's summarizing of the Hebrew law and prophets in two all-embracing commandments, to love God above all, <coughs> and to love one's neighbor as oneself. In a similar way, the Baha'i faith involves in all abiding love for one's fellow creatures, which recalls the love of the Creator. Creativity, not destructiveness, is at the heart of this system of belief. It is remarkable that of all the spiritual traditions of the world that believe in pass passive action, most have taken up arms, or all have taken up arms, to defend themselves. It is the Baha'is in Iran who have been subject to a 20-year persecution, who have been robbed of their livelihood, their life, their dignity, their humanity, their businesses were confiscated, they're not allowed to uh, enter school or university, they're deprived of every human right you can imagine. And they have been also killed. There has never been an act of violence in the last 20 years of this long persecution in Iran. 
you can't uh, believe in unity, in creativity, in life, and you yourself do the opposite. This is why with some animal uh, liberationists, it is really incongruent with what they believe, or, or the lifeists, as they call themselves, that they send bombs to kill other people. This, is, this, this defeats the purpose, and it cannot serve any purpose, really. Throughout the writings of Baha'u'llah, the imagery of the creative word recurs constantly. Nature imagery is used to support this. Trees, birds, flowers, especially roses, water and the ocean are used not only as individual symbols, but as a symbol of the faith of God, the creative word itself. Each has its own web of association. Birds suggest the soul and water the forces of life and the source of all creation, recalling the Quranic verse, وَمِنَ الْمَاءِ خَلَقْنَا كُلُّ شَيْءٍ Out of water we have created every living thing. The tree too, a tree neither of the east nor of the west, is an enduring symbol, not only in the writings of Baha'u'llah, but in many other cultures, the Judeo-Christian tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the source of golden apples of the Hesperides, or the fruit which supplied the Norse gods of Asgard with eternal youth, the great world ash tree which linked the underworld with Midgard, the world of mortals, and Asgard, the realm of the gods in Scandinavian myth. The green eternal tree of life evoked by Goethe in his Faust is a potent metaphor for the vigor and enduring quality of God's creation. Yet, in a Baha'i context, it gains an added dimension from the repeated emphasis on the divine intent and loving purpose underlying creation. As the lethal effects of acid rain become ever more apparent, uh, the stripping of foliage and the death of trees in the great forests of Scandinavia and Central Europe are a poignant reminder of this. It's difficult to read the passage just cited from the Quran without reflecting sadly on the rivers and lakes of those countries whose crystal clarity is a deadly reminder of the destruction of plant and animal life through pollution. To manipulate nature for one's own ends, therefore, is in Baha'i eyes an assault not only on creation but on the creator. It's an act against God and as such a kind of blasphemy which not only defaces the environment and degrades the perpetrators, but directly affronts the source of a bounty intended for the protection and prosperity of all humanity. This is all the more readily comprehensible if we examine in detail further passages from the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá, which deal specifically with the properties of plants and animals, demonstrating their interdependence and their inextricable linking in a complex network of mutual existence. This principle of unity is expressed as follows. Know ye that the world of existence is a single world, although its stations are various and distinct. For example, the mineral life occupies its own plane, but a mineral entity is without any awareness of all the vegetable kingdom and indeed with its inner 
tongue denieth that there is any such kingdom. In the same way, a vegetable entity knoweth nothing of the animal world, remaining completely heedless and ignorant thereof, for the stage of the animal is higher than that of the vegetable. And the vegetable is veiled from the animal world and inwardly denieth the existence of that world. All this while animal, vegetable and mineral dwell together in the one world. Of the power of discovery which belongeth to the human mind, this power which can grasp abstract and universal ideas, the animal remaineth totally ignorant and indeed denieth its existence. Thus, the structure of the world is revealed as a precise series of gradations, with the lower degrees being unaware of higher levels of existence and their powers of perception. By extension, a man himself is unaware of insights which are reserved solely for the Creator and cannot, despite his superior intellect and powers of reasoning, unravel the ultimate secrets of the universe. This perspective should help to maintain in us a proper spirit of humility before God, limitless as our faculties may seem to us. They are little enough in relation to the omnipotence of the Creator. Bearing this in mind, man is enjoined not to adopt an arrogant and overbearing attitude towards lesser species. O ye beloved of the Lord, writes Abdu'l-Bahá, the kingdom of God is founded upon equity and justice, and also upon mercy, compassion and kindliness to every living soul. Strive ye then with all, all your heart, to treat compassionately all humankind, except for those who have some selfish private motive or some disease of the soul. Kindness cannot be shown the tyrant, the deceiver, or the thief, because far from awakening them to the error of their ways, it maketh them to continue in the perversity as before. No matter how much kindliness he may expand, expend upon the liar, he will but lie the more, for he believeth you to be deceived while ye understand him but too well and only remain silent out of your extreme compassion. Briefly, it's not only their fellow human beings that the beloved of God must treat with mercy and compassion, rather must they show forth the utmost loving kindness to every living creature, for in all physical respects and where the animal spirit is concerned, the selfsame feelings are shared by animal and man. Man has not grasped this truth, however, and he believeth that physical sensations are confined to human beings. Wherefore, he is unjust to the animal and to And yet, in truth, what difference is there when it cometh to physical sensations? The feelings are one and the same, whether ye inflict pain on man or on beast. There is no difference here, whatever. And indeed, you do worse to harm an animal. For man hath a language. He can lodge a complaint. He can cry out and moan. If injured, he can have recourse to the authorities, and these will protect him from his aggressor. But the hapless beast is mute, able neither to express its hurt nor to take its case to the authorities. If a man inflict a thousand ills upon a beast, it can neither ward him off 
with speech nor hale him into court. Therefore, it is essential that ye show forth the utmost consideration to the animal and that ye be even kinder to him than to your fellow man. Train your children from their earliest days to be infinitely tender and loving to animals. If an animal be sick, let the children try to heal it. If it be hungry, let them feed it. If it be thirsty, let them quench its thirst. If weary, let them see that it rests. Most human beings are sinners, but the beasts are innocent. Surely those without sin should receive the most kindness and love. Therefore, compassion to wild and raving beasts is cruelty to the peaceful ones, and so the harmful must be dealt with. But to blessed animals, the utmost kindness must be shown. The more, the better. Tenderness and loving kindness are basic principles of God's heavenly kingdom. You should most carefully bear this matter in mind. I have quoted this passage at length because it expresses some of the most profound truths embodied in the Baha'i faith. Compassion, justice and humility. There is no room here for sentimentality. Instead, we find a recognition that some creatures, because of their basic nature, constitute a threat to members of their own or other species which require protective measures when their paths cross those of human beings or creatures under their protection and care. It is possible, of course, to argue in specific instances that wolves, for example, cannot be regarded as bloodthirsty in human terms and to do so represents an anthropomorphic imposition of human values. In general, however, the principle remains valid. It is in keeping with the deepest tenets of Baha'i belief to care for those who are weakest and most in need of help and shelter. Moreover, the believer is enjoined to pass on these precepts to his or her own children, allowing them from their earliest years to develop a relationship of trust and respect with animals and to understand and meet their needs. The underlying message places the adult believer firmly within a multi-layered a, a multi structure of interlinking bonds of trust and tenderness, respect and reverence, in which there are endless lessons to be learned, often from those who seem to be the humblest in the family of creation. Made up of the same constituent elements of man, animals share our capacity for physical pain and are at the mercy of humans in the same way as we are in the power of a creator whose mercy outweighs our offenses, but who admits us to a relationship not of tyranny and exploitation, but of trust, confidence and love, and who offers us the gifts and resources to meet not only physical, but our, only our physical, but our deepest spiritual needs. And so, as the child learns from the parent how to respond to the rest of creation and to meet the responsibilities of being human with justice and compassion, we taking our pattern from God itself may come to develop 
the gifts which we have each received from him to claim the true dignity of humanity without pride or self-importance and to carry out his purpose for each of us and for all of his creation. I would like to end with one more quotation. This is from the writings of Baha'u'llah. It's actually a prayer, a meditation. And I find it extremely appropriate here in this respect. Thy might beareth me witness, O my well-beloved. The entire creation hath been called into being to exalt thy triumph and to establish thine ascendancy. And all the bounds that have been set by thee are but the signs of thy sovereignty. Proclaim the power of thy might. How great, how very great are the revelations of thy wondrous power in all things. They are such that the lowliest among thy creatures hath been made by thee a manifestation of thy most august attribute, and the most contemptible token of thy handiwork hath been chosen as a recipient of thy most mighty name. Poverty as decreed by thee hath been made the means of the revelation of thy riches, an abasement, a path leading to thy glory, and sinfulness, a cause for the exercise of thy forgiveness. By them thou hast demonstrated that to thee belong thy most excellent titles, and unto thee pertain the wonders of thy most exalted attributes. Another passage. He's really a believer in the unity of God who recognizes in each and every created thing the sign of the revelation of him who is the eternal truth and not he who maintaineth that the creature is indistinguishable from the creator. Whatever reflecteth in the heavens and on the earth the signs of his glory may not be deprived of the outpourings of his mercy. It was Al-Hallaj, that outstanding figure of Sufi literature in Arabic, who said, مَا رَأَيْتُ شَيْئًا إِلَّا رَأَيْتُ اللَّهَ فِيهِ I never looked at anything but saw God in that thing which William Blake later said almost the same thing, everything that lives is holy. Perhaps in environmental terms, Baha'is believe that everything that exists is holy.
Well, you see, I'm afraid I'm not an expert on that, and I, I, I <laughs> one of the sometimes uh, admission of ignorance is a wonderful thing indeed. I really don't know very much about it, but I can say this, that the architect who uh, designed uh, the temple in Delhi uh, really wanted it to blend with the culture and the country and the, the spiritual, I think, also, uh, essence of India. And so the lotus is as a symbol, I think, isn't it? Kathleen um, knows more about India than I do, that the lotus uh, is a sacred uh, flower, and it symbolizes uh, uh, many uh, sacred uh, ideas in, in Hindu philosophy and Hindu religion. And I think that uh, it, it, we, the, the architect there was very much also in consultation with the National Spiritual Assembly of the country, which is uh, Baha'is in their organization, elect nine people for every city, and then they have uh, a college that elects uh, the representatives of the country, which are a National Spiritual Assembly, we call it. And so he was in consultation with the National Spiritual Assembly, who uh, also f gave all the feedback that he needed about how this temple should look. Now, I have a story to tell about this, which is very interesting. Uh, we were in India in 1989, Catherine, if you remember, for the Yates Memorial Lecture. And uh, I, I was uh, invited to meet various people and uh, Parliament, uh, Ministry of Education. Uh, and uh, everywhere I went, uh, they, they used to ask me, they said, well, you come from Lebanon, yes? You, you are an Arab, yes, yes, yes. You are Muslim? I said, no, I'm Baha'i. Have you seen the temple? Everywhere I went, the question was, have you seen the temple? And, uh, and that immediately we went to the discussion of the temple. So the Indians were so impressed with the fact that here was something which they regarded as their own. It was nothing foreign. And I think this is what uh, all the... There are several Baha'i houses of worship, and each one of them is very special in its own way. And it really blends with with uh, with the country it is in. Uh, I think there's one in Australia, and there is, uh, there is one in uh, Uganda, and there's one in Panama, and there is one in the United States. The one in the United States is very interesting because it was designed by Nanbai, a French architect, and it uh, represents really a mixture of various architectures. But the United States of America is a mixture of various people. So it, it blends very well with, with the culture and with, this, with the soul and spirit of the nation. I think it was Khalid Jubran who said once that, uh, that uh, every place has a soul. And uh, if you tamper with that soul, well, you know what happens. You mentioned Mount Carmel, yeah. city. Yeah. And well, Well, yes, yes. I mean, no, I'm uh, striving to build the idea. Quite right. Uh, from um, from the pragmatic point of view, uh, has it got any autonomy? The city, or does it belong uh, to Israel or to Gaza, or no. has anything here? No, the the the,
yeah, yes, I, 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 I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Let me let me put it this way. I mean, uh, civically, mm. yeah. but civic yeah. Where does it belong? Yeah. Our uh, the, the Baha'is have a world center, administrative world center, which is also a spiritual world center, for the simple reason that uh, Baha'u'llah, the founder of the faith, is buried in Akka, and uh, Abdul Baha and Nabat, the foreigner, and, and the son of Baha'u'llah, are buried on Mount Kamp. Uh, this is the Twin Cities, we call them. Uh, the Baha'i the Baha uh, faith is really an international religion, and what you see on Mount Carmel is owned by the different national spiritual assemblies of the world. The actual deeds are in the name of different national spiritual assemblies of the world. And that is recognized by oh, both Arabs and the uh, Well, I don't know about being recognized by Arabs or Israelis. I think from a point of view of uh, world uh, religion and uh, an international community, uh, at least uh, it is in existence. Now, how far either side recognizes this, I don't know. I mean, I want to tell you, may, I may say something. Please, of course. I, I had a feeling when we were talking about this idea of city, you know, the new Jerusalem. And, I mean, I know, I know the idea behind it very well. Maybe this is going to be the solution of that wretched uh, uh, situation. situation. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe this is going to be the new, uh, the catalyst, yeah. uh, uh, and making the whole place. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, as you very well know, spiritually internationalized. Inshallah, as, as you very well know, in in the Baha'i faith, we have no clergy and we have no anybody of status. So, so any Baha'i here who wishes to make a contribution, and I don't know everything. I don't represent the Baha'i faith at all. As a matter of fact, I'm here just as a humble area, sharing with you a wonderful evening, talking about something that I believe in, of course, and it's very near to my heart. And uh, as uh, Catherine said, uh, for me, uh, uh, may I share this story with, uh, sorry, may I share this story? Please. You know, I went to Quranic school in my early days, you know, from the age of five to the age of seven. I read nothing but the Qur'an and Arabic calligraphy and, <coughs> and some poetry. Then my father, in his wisdom, thought I needed a cultural shock. So he sent me to an Anglican missionary school where I was put into a blazer and a cap and made to play cricket. <laughs> <laughs> But it was something that really touched me deeply and profoundly. I never thought about religion at the time. With Muslims, I was Muslim. At home, my parents were Baha'is, it was fine. But that, you know, faith is something that you can't inherit from your parents. It is something you have to win. It's like somebody running a marathon and suddenly says, yes, I have won that. It is not something you inherit. And for me, it was like that. It was when I walked into the chapel 
and every morning we have to go to chapel for the lesson. I saw the crucified one on the wall, and it really grasped my heart. I felt so moved by the image of someone crucified. I had seen these everywhere. I never paid any The first day at school, when I stood before the crucified one, something really happened to me personally. I felt so poor and deprived because I had been to a Muslim school where really non-Muslims were all Catholic. Everybody was heretic. And it remained with me for a number of years. Why can't I have both? And the solution to having both was when I became much older, at the age of 20, 21, that I decided to be a Baha'i. So problem for me. <coughs> and so to have both Christ and Muhammad and Moses and Zoroaster and all this as part of my spiritual, you see, cultural makeup is fine, it's great, it's wonderful. Professor, we have a time limit imposed upon us, I'm afraid, in terms of questions. There are three things to do. Firstly, I would like to thank you very much for speaking to us. It's uh, been extremely interesting for, for me to hear it, and I, I know for others. I've been impressed by the common themes that have occurred in the four papers that we've had um, in this little series. But it also, tonight, in the richness that your teaching uh, brings to this perspective of the environment. So the first thing is to thank you. Second thing is to remind people as they're thinking of presents for themselves for the festive season of your new book, uh, which is at the back and for sale. And I, will give I had nothing to do with this. No, I, I don't. I don't. But nevertheless, we will remind you. The third thing is, Professor, that at the end, it is the... Um, become accustomed on these lectures to finish with a short period of silence. But I wonder this evening whether you would like to uh, end the evening by a, a, a prayer from your own faith. That would be something be very good. I must uh, thank uh, the Secretary of the National, General Secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly, Mr. Barney Leith, who is here with us tonight, for having lent me these two booklets. Uh, I was traveling, couldn't get anything, but these are, so if these can, anybody's 